Warriors podcast. I am Max. I am Rich. And on this podcast, we will be focusing on the Weird War Tales comic book series published by DC Comics from 1971 to 1983. On this episode, if I've got it right, we'll be taking a look at Weird War Tales number 34. Right, Rich? Right. <laughs> episode, thir- episode 39. Episode 39, issue 34. It's simple. The math is perfect. But before we get into the issue at hand, Rich has a couple of detours to take you on. First of which being some retroactive history. Indeed. And then there were five. Knock two more DC war books off the hunt list. All-American Men of War 128 and Our Army at War number 12. For those without insanely sharp memories or those who have joined the fan base since we covered that issue, Flying Blind from Weird War Tales 7 was originally printed in Our Army at War 12, with the exception of the usual coloring differences and the floating head of the narrator off to one side of the first page, there are no differences between the two books. Intel Report. Breath of Bones, A Tale of a Golem a black-and-white three-issue miniseries published by Dark Horse Comics in 2013 and collected as a trade in 2021. Story by Steve Niles and Matt Santoro, art by Dave Wachter. When the Germans come looking for a British pilot that was shot down over a Jewish village, the villagers hide the survivor and use river mud and clay to build a golem to battle the invaders in an attempt to safeguard their own lives as well as that of the pilot. Dave Walker's art is incredible. That was a great pickup. Go find it, people. Yeah, that sounds cool to me, too. And yet one more little uh, little detour we like to take here before we get down to the issue at hand is going to be letting you guys know about another awesome podcast that's out there. So here comes a small podcast promo break. We get back. We'll take a look at Weird War Tales number 34. Do you like comics? The 1960s? How about middle-aged gay couples gossiping about their neighbors? Then you'll love Checkered Past. A loving examination of DC's GoGo Check branded comic magazines published from February 1966 to August 1967. I'm Dr. Bob. And I'm Dr. Husband. And each week we'll be your hosts on a trippy tour through mid-century four-color madness. Checkered Past. Available wherever fine podcasts are downloaded for free. As I said before the break, we're going to take a look at Weird War Tales number 34, and Rich is going to hit you with that cover detail. Luis Dominguez keeps his streak of cover art alive. The mystery and madness of Weird War Tales is still the very best 25 cents. The red title rests on a yellow sky, presenting a sharp look. A kneeling American GI tries to ram a bayoneted rifle into a Japanese soldier that's lying on his back in jungle grass. The Japanese soldier is screaming, one hand clutching the end of the American's rifle, the other cocked back with a knife. The GI is looking up in shock as a massive stone head and hands erupt from the jungled mountainside to his left. Cover date, February 1975, data release, November 21st. 1974, Killjoy. The rifle looks like a grand, but the bayonet looks Japanese. If the hook wasn't on the end of the bayonet, I would have missed it. 
comments and commendations. The vertical shading on the giant's head and hands adds to the impression of him bursting out of the ground. The Japanese soldier doesn't see the giant and is probably an instant away from killing the American with his knife. Vaguely reminiscent of issue 28's The Isle of Forgotten Warriors, which is actually about to debut next week, fine listeners, as we're recording this. Certainly a cover that would make you go, what the hell, if you saw it on the rack. Pretty good start. Yeah, I gotta say the portrayal of the Japanese soldier is a bit suspect. I, I reached my hand for the old comics man bell a little bit, but otherwise, this cover is another broken record for me, but fine example of a silent image by old LD. I do feel like it could have been spiced up by some kind of blurbery for the first time with a Lewis uh, silent cover here, maybe owing to the slight amount of excess negative space, in my opinion, between the soldiers and the emerging monster. But the detail on the landscape, it just degrades into a flat color only zone that leaves my eye wanting a little bit more, but you're right. This is another really good attention grabber from a distance and only gets nitpicked by someone like me who is a fussy old man who reads too many comics. And with the cover out of the way, we're gonna go into the first full length story of the issue and Rich is gonna take it away for you. The Common Enemy, eight pages. Script by Arnold Drake, art by Jack Sparling. It's the cover story. In the spring of 1942, Chief Petty Officer Phil Randell is the sole survivor of a PT boat that was sunk during a raid on a Japanese flotilla. Pulling himself onto some floating wreckage, he eventually washes ashore a deserted island. There's plenty of food and water, but he's alone, except for a massive stone head about three times his size that must have been carved by some local natives. Thinking someone must come by once or twice a year to pay their respects, Randell settles in to wait. But two years pass and no one comes. Crafting an American flag using berries for dye, the now bearded and bedraggled Randall claims the island for the United States and fires a shot from his Thompson in salute. Two shots reply, and Randell is surprised to see a boat heading towards the island with one person in it. Thinking it's a GI, Randall starts to celebrate not being alone anymore, until more fire riddles his flag. It's the enemy! Randell dives for cover and returns fire as a Japanese survivor comes ashore and runs into the jungle. Months pass. Years. The two men engage in countless skirmishes trying to kill each other. Until one day, Randell stands atop the giant head scouting for the enemy, who throws a grenade at him from behind. Randell turns in time and bats the grenade away with the stock of his weapon. The grenade explodes next to the head, which begins to rock. As Randell dives away, huge stone hands push up through the sand. The stone giant roars as it pulls itself fully out of the sand, and Randell opens fire. As the giant turns towards the American, Randell runs out of ammo and yells for help. Give me a hand, Hirohito! He's your enemy, too! The Japanese soldier fires, and the giant turns towards him, still roaring. Randell strikes the giant with the stock of his weapon in the legs. The two soldiers maintain their attacks until a strange alien craft, glowing orange, suddenly appears in the sky and settles in the water just offshore. The giant must have signaled for it after the grenade's concussion woke him up. It wades out, boards the craft, and takes off. The soldiers begin to sing, 
laugh and dance in celebration of saving the world from an alien invasion. We sent the Martian back. We sent the Martian back. Hi-ho, the Dario. We sent the Martian back. They were heroes. But Randell catches a glimmer in the Japanese's eye and dives for cover when he opens fire. Randell returns it, and the war goes on in 1974. Killjoy, History Minute. Man, these guys are really bad shots. We're talking stormtrooper stock. If they've been trying to kill each other unsuccessfully for 29 years. I mean, look at the last panel on page eight. I mean, come on. Along the same lines, where in the hell have these been guys getting all this ammo from for all this bad shooting? This should have been reduced to spears and bows and arrows a long time ago. And the automatic weapon sound effect of coming from the Japanese soldier's bolt-action rifle with a magazine under it made me grind my teeth a little bit. Plot holes galore! This is actually a surprisingly topical story that Drake puts out here. As most of you should know, the Bushido Code during World War II forbade Japanese troops to surrender. This led to the infamous Banzai charges or killing themselves with hand grenades. Sometimes the troops would simply disappear into the jungle rather than give up as the island they occupied fell. Most of the Japanese died or surrendered in the immediate aftermath of the war, but there were some extreme exceptions. In 1972, two fishermen in Guam captured Suichi Yokoi, the last holdout on the island, after 27 years in hiding. Hiro Onada ignored leaflet drops declaring the war was over and continued to fight a guerrilla war on the Philippine island of Lubang with a handful of other holdouts until the others were killed. It wasn't until Haru's commanding officer went to the island and formally relieved him of duty that he surrendered on March 9th, 1974, 29 years after the end of the war. But the last of the last was Taru Nakamura of the Indonesian island of Morotai. Suspecting there was a holdout on the island, searchers waved the Japanese flag and sang the national anthem to get him to show himself. It worked, and the war ended for Taru on December 18th, 1974 almost a month after this comic issue was released and over 30 years after Moritai fell to the Allies. In 1965, the TV show Gilligan's Island went there as well in season one's episode, So Sorry, My Island Now, when a Japanese sailor that doesn't know the war had ended runs afoul of the castaways. There are clips of that online and yeah, that episode is painful to watch now. Thick eyeglasses, Bad accent. Yikes. Yeah, where the cover stops short when ringing the old comics man bell. Gilligan's right there, just both hands ringing that as hard as he can. So, you know, don't worry, people. Somebody got it. So CNC for this story, I'll, I'll start it off. I like this one. Even if there should have been an explanation for why these two castaways upon this desert isle eh, were going at it for 29 years, as you alluded to, there was just no reason to link the time of their ongoing feud to the year that the comic book was published. You know, it just seems like they were doing that on purpose artificially. And that's what really stretches the story beyond any possible belief, if you're thinking about it. They could have just been vague about the whole thing, and the story would have worked just fine. Better even. I think the alien stone creature was just trying to enjoy like a remote spa treatment on his vacation time. A million years or so. You know how long these people have for paid time off. 
and he just seems vaguely annoyed as he nakedly staggers out to his ship. I love it. It's, it's like, well, we're going to get a bad Galactic TripAdvisor review right there, humans. The art is great all the way through. I'll call out page three, panel five, and page four, panel three, each showing our castaways fleeing into the foreground and also showing that Jack Sparling is not afraid to draw bare human feet, including individual toes in a comic book. So insert a joke about a certain 90s era doofus here. I had fun with this one, even though it's riddled with holes, like Rich said. I, I have no idea who, who you're talking about next. Uh, Shades of Easter Island, obviously. This story is a little distressing because it's the age-old tale of two enemies joining together to fight a common foe. And as soon as that foe is vanquished, they pick right up where they left off. And, of course, it's the Japanese soldier that fires first. Just a reminder that we humans are doomed, folks! Be it by rifles or atomic weapons. It's a well-crafted story, though, if slightly depressing and well worthy of inclusion here. I like page seven, panel five, as the humans watch the giant wade out to his ship, and actually all of page eight, as the humans go from celebration back to trying to kill each other. Yep. Ah, society. You gotta love it. <laughs> yeah, that, off to a fun start. So I'll, I'll go ahead and take the second story in the issue and see if the fun continues. This one is called The Flying Coffins. It's eight pages long. Script is by our old buddy, Bob Conniger, and art is by, someone who's new to me at least with my terrible memory, uh, Ruben Yandok. Synopsis goes a little something like this. Frenchman Guy Genet, or Guy Genet, depending on which way I want to mispronounce it, with 15 kills, and German Franz Kleber with 19 kills, take off from their respective airfields in 1916 to engage in a predetermined duel over... Amiens? Amiens? Either way, I'm real bad at the, the French pronunciations, or I think that's French. Rich will tell you when I stop talking. Each... It is, folks. <laughs> maybe, maybe I should have done this one for a That's for fine. A I, it's a hot mess, and I'm involved, so it's consistent with the previous episodes of the series. So hey. <laughs> Each pilot is driven with a homicidal drive to kill the other. But fate intervenes. German anti-aircraft fire scores a direct hit on Genet's plane as he spirals towards no man's land. He vows he can't die without taking Kleber with him. Genet is killed on impact. Likewise, Kleber's engine cuts out and he is forced to make a dead stick landing in no man's land. Trapped in his cockpit, he watches helplessly as allied artillery bursts walk toward him, and also vows not to die without taking Genet to hell with him. Isn't that nice? Kleber is killed by a direct hit. That night, two German infantrymen sneak into no man's land and bury the two pilots in a common grave. But ghostly figures soon claw their way out and man their equally ghostly ships determined to continue their eternal duel. On a night patrol over France, Lieutenant Frank Dale, I got that name, <laughs> flying a P-51 Mustang, sees the German triplane fly under him. 
Amused by the Germans using an antique ship like that, he dives to attack, but his fire and plane pass right through the Fokker. To his amazement, he watches the Fokker engage in Newport in a swirling dogfight. Later, debriefing his squadron's intelligence officer about what he had witnessed, Dale is taken off flight status and given a sedative. Obviously, he'd seen too much combat. <laughs> and Rich is going to follow that up with some killjoy. Indeed. Because that's my job, although I don't get paid for it. Although I generally like Yandok's art, he can't draw an accurate aircraft to save his life. Again, I've had this bitch in the past with other artists. The Newports, Folkers, and Mustangs are ID'd in the story. We'll use page one, panel two as an example. Not a DR1. Bring back George Evans! Oh, wait. Spoiler alert. They soon will. Comments and commendations. Page two, panel three is probably my favorite of the story, as death sits on a cloud in flying gear as the two protagonists approach each other. Read the panel right here. The two pilots are so eager to kill each other that it would be a shame not to grant them their burning desire, but not quite as they expect. Cool panel. You'll love it when you see it. Likewise, page six panels three, four, and five, as the two dead pilots return to their aircraft under a full moon and wispy clouds are likewise captivating. The second straight story of never-ending war. Conagher, as usually, nailed it. Pretty much agreed. I mean, of course, none of that Killjoy stuff confronted me none, so I enjoyed pretty much every page of this story. I say pretty much because the twist on the last page had no real impact or really point to it. Some guy saw the ghosts and who is he? Why do we care? Eh, whatever. The rest of the tale was great, though. Art, writing, and lettering included. The sound effects work in these pages is fantastic. And just check out page four, panel three, with the sound of Kleber's engine cutting out. Sug, sug, pop, pop, crag, crag, crag for a much more silent highlight, I'll call out the entire first page. Just beautiful work. So two hits in a row, people. We're on our way to a hat trick of an issue. Let's see if that happens with the third full-length story, and Rich is back up to bat. To his rescue came a maiden. Four pages, script by George Cashtan, art by another newbie, Ricardo Viamonte. SS Colonel Werner von Hoffmann is fleeing from the Americans and hides in Koenig Castle. Although long deserted, the castle still has a caretaker, Willie, the last of a long line. Von Hoffmann pushes Willie down as American fire rips through the window. When Willie confirms von Hoffmann's suspicion that he knows every nook and cranny of the castle, the SS officer demands the caretaker help him escape from the Americans. Perhaps, if successful, Willie will even be honored as a hero of the Third Reich. Willie reluctantly agrees. As Willie leads von Hoffman through the castle's corridors, the shadows of pursuing Americans follow. Finally, Willie stops in front of a door and tells the colonel that once he passes through it, the Americans will bother him no more. This pleases von Hoffman, but he worries that Willie will betray him to the approaching enemy. He pulls out his Luger and kills the caretaker. Farewell, hero of the Third Reich, he exclaims. Opening the heavy door, he steps through. 
that slams shut behind Von Hoffman, and there's a scream. Shortly afterwards, a squad of GIs stream into the chamber. They discover Willie's body, still warm, but there's no sign of Von Hoffman. They lament that the German has escaped, then leave. But not long afterwards, the metal door slowly creaks open, and Von Hoffman's limp body pitches to the floor, riddled from head to toe with gaping, gushing holes. He was a victim of one of man's oldest torture devices, the Iron Maiden. Killjoy! Willie never identifies himself, but Von Hoffman knew his name three panels after asking who he was! Damn you, Cashdan! <laughs> And I should say, at the time of this recording, I'm going to be going to see Iron Maiden in concert in a couple of weeks. So, hell yeah. About the story for comments and commendations, focusing on the comic at hand, if I must, I'll say this story was cliched as hell, but so well executed that I didn't mind much. The art was excellent, and I'll call out the very dynamic splash page, which gave me old school movie poster vibes. And the fact that our non-helmeted host is actually drawn with those fault lines at the top of the skull where, like, the plates come together. Every skeleton scene from that angle in this story has them rendered that way, too. So that was a really cool touch to see. I did enjoy that Willie apparently just planned on killing the colonel in the first place. So that added at least a soupçon, being a little French there, of originality to the proceeding. So I'm happy. Three stories in a row. Who knew? The shortest tale in the book and the most predictable. He knew Von Hoffman was going to betray Willie by the halfway point. But Viamonte draws masterful scenes of horror. Angles, shadows, etc. Page 3, panel 4, as a red-faced Von Hoffman kills Willie. And page 4, panel 1. Skeletons in the foreground still chained to the walls as shadowed GIs descend a staircase and shine a flashlight on Willie's body. This is classic stuff. We'll be seeing him again. All right. Three stories over. That's the story content of the issue. So you know how it goes, folks. We're going to wander over to the letters box, to the mailbox, to the APO Weird War Tales page and see who wrote in to this issue of the comic. And uh, let's see here. This APO Weird War Tales page is brought to you by issue number 29 of the series, which featured Breaking Point, Lawrence of Arabia, and the Phantom Bowman. The Rich is going to hit you with his spotlight letter first. Frank Winkowski from Portland, Oregon draws my ire. Dear Joe, your latest issue of Weird War Tales just didn't make the grade. I've come to expect new and novel ideas in WWT, or at least old ideas handled with some spectacular new twist. But number 29 included none of those things. It was just another collection of worn-out stories. The lack of science fiction-oriented story might have had something to do with it. You did avoid having more than one story set in World War II, but the other choices were uninspired. We've seen tons of Lawrence of Arabia stuff, and the four-page shorty was just an incident, not a story. Please get back on track. I'm like, yeah, well, <laughs> I have to hardly disagree with whatever Frank has to say here. I thoroughly enjoyed that book. And we get into this a couple of times. Um, you, you see that certain issues of Weird War Tales will just incorporate stories that have to do with whatever the culture zeitgeist at that particular moment in time is. Captain Storm, you know, P.T. Boat Skipper. You know, there's a huge cultural thing about that back in the 60s, which I'm actually going to talk about 
next episode, spoiler alert, with you know JFK and Mikhail's Navy and, and PT-109 and everything else like that. Lawrence of Arabia was a thing. You know, Planet of the Apes and various sundry knockoffs was a thing. You can't get away from certain things. Sorry, nothing has changed. <laughs> so I thought 29 was a solid issue. Gotta disagree with little Frankie Frank here. Facts. <laughs> yeah, Frank is from Portland, Oregon. So he's just a, you know, joyless hipster. <laughs> you know, nothing's cool enough for Frank. Okay, fine. I've probably never heard of the stuff you like. I get it. <laughs> but, you know, on a slightly more positive side, I'll take a look at the letter at the top of the page, which is from Richard McKenzie from Montreal. It goes something like this. Dear Joe, Weird War Tales number 29 was very good, as usual. See? A little more positivity there. I continue to marvel at your ability to produce such a difficult mag so well month after month. But to the issue at hand, Although the Phantom Bowman of Creasy was cliche with a very predictable ending, it was held together by the fine Jerry Talayoc art, right on. The Hunted was well scripted, but it was Alfredo Alcala's art that really made the story go. Agreed, although I like the story fine in that one. Finally, Breaking Point was a masterpiece. It is definitely the best story I've seen in your mag for many a month. Jack Olek and Ernie Chua make an outstanding team and they really did their finest work this time. As you've noticed, I've been very complimentary about your art this issue, but this brings me to ask about the future since Tony De Zuniga has left your pages and both he and Alcala have been showing up in Marvel mags. Richard McKenzie, Montreal, Canada. Our editor responds to say, it's quite true that the two artists you mentioned are now not a part of the Weird War crew but that will not hurt the artistic quality of the magazine. We work with a number of great talents and we're always adding new names to the roster. You've recently seen the first work of Frank Reyes in WWT, and there are more like him coming up. So I just thought that was pretty cool that we had a letter that addresses the fates of certain artists leaving the book and who's sticking around and who's not. We were just talking about that the uh, episode previous, I think. Very cool to see that kind of communication going on, like confirming who's off and who's coming on to the book and stuff like that. You got to like an actual good communicative, uh, what, did, what did Joe Kubert say? Well-constructed, well-thought-out letter. <laughs> so that was nice, even though we had Frank Winkowski, who can't be pleased, but hey, comic book fandom. That's the mailbox. That's the mail call. That's the APO Weird War Tales page out of the way. And we're going to roll on to our spotlighted ads for the issue. And I'll kick it off because I have the less impressive one. <laughs> we'll get that one out of the way first. My ad is just one of these little things. And, and you know, a block of like, hey, order these stupid gimmicks. And I thought one of them was kind of funny. It says, 1,001 free things. Get free gifts, novelties, books, product samples, toys, maps, etc., from companies, federal agencies, associations, etc. There's a lot of etc. going on here that are anxious to send you free. It's a 63. I can't read the, the numbers all messed up, but whatever. It's a free book with names and addresses to write for your 1,001 free things. The book costs a dollar. So it's free. Give me a dollar. I just kind of like that. 
You want to know about you can get all this free stuff? Give me a dollar. I'll tell you. <laughs> so there we go. That ad's out of the way. Now Rich is going to hit you with the big one in this issue. <laughs> Steve Scout, America's only scout action figure. I wonder if Duke the Wonder Dog is part of the set. New America's only scout action figure salutes by pushing his left hand. He kneels to chop wood, stands to signal, sits by the campfire. Hands, grasp, rope, paddles, tools, etc. And also you have Bob Scout, Steve's African-American friend. Yay for diversity. High Adventure sets also available. Pathfinder, Jeep-like vehicle. High Adventure Scout Base. Tall lookout tower platform on top has battery flasher, telescope, and canvas tent for the scouts. Many other Scout Adventure sets available. All yours from Kenner and General Mills over nine inches tall so maybe you know you could have your little gi joe and steve scout action adventure sets or something <laughs> never had it never heard of it i was a cub scout and a boy scout for a little while didn't have this toy though so eh, whatever yeah i i'd never heard of this one either i you know even with all the the stupid comics and the stuff that i've read and the ads and the toys that i've had and everything this one completely escaped me but i think you're right i think it's probably sized so you can have a little kid sidekick to the old, I think, 12-inch G.I. Joes. That, that, that could be it. But just a fantastic ad. Wait, wait till you see the picture and the album, people. It's so good. I knew Rich was going to grab it. So I had to look hard for my book of free things that cost a dollar. So that's the ads out of the way. We're going to move on to the little section we like to call Got Any Last Words. Anytime I have to research a history minute, I'm a happy guy. And it's weird, too. Kinda. This is a great issue. Two of the three stories conceivably could have happened. Well, to a point. I will go with flying coffins being my favorite story. But Common Enemy was close. Solid addition to the title. I liked the entire issue, as you guys have heard already. But surprisingly, it's, it's the most cliched story that takes the lead for me this time around. And maybe just because it had the whole... Igor and Frankenstein's castle vibe going on, the very cool horror movie art that Rich alluded to. They're all great in this issue. Enjoyable stuff all the way around, but I gotta pick a favorite, so there we go. That's the last words. Great issue of the, of the series out of the way. We're gonna swing on over to the Dead Letter office, where we remind you that, you know, if you like, if you want, you can go to redbubble.com and order some merch with our logo on it. And I get an email whenever someone buys anything. So I know nobody's doing it. So <laughs> Redbubble.com, Weird Warriors podcast, search it up, get a freaking coffee mug or something. We don't actually make any money off this. So just do it for yourself. <laughs> like, come on, people. Someone must have missed someone on their Christmas list. Make it a belated present for somebody, for God's sake. He'll be a cheap care. bastard. <laughs> I don't care if you do it out of pity. I just like to get. And I, I know Jason Zeller, who we'll mention again pretty soon, ordered a mug. So that's great. You know, not to cast shade on everybody because, hey, Jason's there buying some stuff. But what we also do rather than whine and complain about the Weird Warriors podcast PX over here, is we like to give a little nod to those listeners who have liked or shared or 
said hi or whatever to us on the various social media platforms out there. So we will start over on the uh, dangerous waters of Twitter and give a little nod back to FP Glasgow, Chris at BTO and Bat Books, the Source Material Podcast, Dave's Comic Heroes Blog, and Doc Strange, Mr. Billy Delicious himself, the Telltale Mind, Coffee and Comics at Coffee Comics Blog, Mr. Clinton Robinson, and uh, Dance Along the Edge, stop by. And over on Facebook, we got Luke Giaconetti, Billy Dunleavy, Dan Brown, our good bud, Tim DeForest. Everyone's our good bud, but you know, I read Tim's blog, so. We got Daniel Rapoli, David Steele of the Earth 2 podcast, and Clinton Robison stopping by on the Facebook page as well. Now, over on Gmail at weirdwarriorspodcast at gmail.com, I said we'd be mentioning Jason Zeller, and he comes through for us, and he wrote in about the third Road Warriors episode we recently released, where we went to Terrificon 2022. And since we just have the one one email here, I'll read it out for you. Jason says, Road Warriors, it's so cool to hear about your Terrificon experience. I have not been to a Comic-Con in several years. Just wanted to say it's great to hear, Rich, that you were down to seven comics to complete your War Comics collection. Max, I can't believe you actually mentioned one of the Mayfair Games books. Ha <laughs> That is so awesome to hear. I never played the games, but always wanted the books for the history side of it. The Atlas of the DC Universe is on my list to get one day. I have the two Legion source books, Legion of Superheroes people, and the later 2995 Legion source book. Again, for my Legion nerds out there, that's a five years later Legion source book for the game. And the World at War source book. But, and that, that's our Golden Age JSA World War II source book for the game. All great stuff. Jason goes on to say, but I want to get more of them for their reference material. Just curious if you ever read these books or if you heard of the Mayfair Games Chessmen series, a series of four books featuring the Legion of Superheroes. Yes to all of those questions from me, Jason. They were all chess-themed in name. Pawns of Time, Knight to Planet, Mad Rook's Gambit, King for All Times. That's what we call adventure modules, people, where you actually play the game and make someone crunch all the numbers to see who wins the fights. Good stuff. It's fun. Be a nerd. Be like us. <laughs> so Jason goes on to say, when it comes to the Legion of Superheroes comics, and I love it. I love getting to talk about the Legion this much on a Weird War Tales podcast. I am the same way, Max. I have collected them in every way they are available. I have the original 13-volume Legion archives. Then I bought the three Silver Age Legion on the buy and the Bronze Age books that they have been reprinting as well, even though I have the original issues. So Jason is more dedicated than me to the Legion. I don't have everything, and especially not those original 13-volume Legion archives. That would set me back if I wanted to get them these days. Jason says, thank goodness you guys did not get crop dusted this time. Take care, Jason. So there we go. So are we. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I can't say I missed it. (laughs) Although then maybe they missed us. (laughs) Yeah. Somebody got crop dusted. It's a Comic-Con. Somebody somewhere got crop dusted. (laughs) Be certain of that. 
And there we go, people. That is a wrap for the episode. So you know what happens next. Rich isn't going to leave you, you know, hanging. He's going to give you a little teaser for what's coming up next. It's time for another special mission, but a different kind of special mission. The Big Five were well represented via reprints in the early days of Weird War Tales, but DC turned out other war-based comic book series that got significantly less love, what I call the next five. So tune in as you get that New Year's bash as ready as we explore selected stories from All Out War, Blitzkrieg, Men of War, and Captain Storm. Right on. Yeah, that's right, Checkered Past. That's right, Checkered Chums of the Checkered Past. You're not going to be the only podcast out there talking about Captain Storm. We're coming. <laughs> so, no, by the way, before you ask, yes, it is a go-go check issue. So <laughs> we're invading your territory. <laughs> what you going to do about it? What you going to do when the Weird War podcast comes for you? Want a piece of this? <laughs> <laughs> so with... That challenge issued and me retreating to a safe spot as quickly as I can, because I'm a coward. I have been Max. I have been Rich. This has been the Weird Warriors podcast. We have been the Batlin Bros. We are the Weird Warriors. We are all kinds of other things that I don't want to hear you say when I'm not around. And we promise to make war. No more! (laughs) 